Good morning, everyone. Now, I definitely wouldn't describe myself as a particularly culinarily inclined individual. I spent most of my seminary years pretty much just eating a lot of pasta, uh, the most filling, the cheapest thing I could possibly come up with. Um, but there are a few things that I do like to bake, uh, and one of them is my mom's favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe. And I'm pretty sure, even though I've only preached a handful of times at Covenant, I've talked about my mom's cooking before, but I'm going to talk about it again because it's special. So she has this chocolate chip cookie recipe, and I can't quite remember the name of the cookbook that it's in, but it's easy to find because if you open up the cookbook, the recipe just falls to the page where you should be. There's so much cookie dough and chocolate caked onto this page that if you just open the little tan cookbook, there it is, just practically begging you to make these cookies again. And, you know, I probably make them every month or two, which for me is like, (laughs) wow, I'm baking a lot. And I don't do it because I really have a sweet tooth or because I really want to eat something sweet. I do it because I want to remember home. When I'm eating those cookies, it's like I'm back in my mom's kitchen, sitting at the island on a stool, just looking and talking about life and eating good food and all those things. It's like the warmest, lovingest place I could think of possibly being. And we do this a lot as humans. We tie food to experiences. When we eat something, we often think back to some memory that we have. And science has shown that there there are connections between parts of our brain and our digestive system. And so it's no wonder that we do this over and over again. And I would challenge you to think, I was trying to think of this earlier. Maybe if, if I'm wrong, you can come up to me after the sermon. But think of a holiday that isn't associated with a specific type of food. So often, Christmas, there's a ham. Thanksgiving, turkey, 4th of July, apple pie, each holiday you can tie to a type of food. And so it's no wonder then that as we look at our text this morning, as we continue talking through Mark, that the way that the Jewish people commemorated their most identifying act when God redeemed them from Egypt, from slavery, the way that they celebrate is through a Passover meal, through a Passover feast. And so our passage this morning tells us the story of that meal and also the story of the meal that we'll have this morning. So I'll be reading from Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. Uh, You can follow along in your bulletins, your pew Bibles, or just listen while I read from Mark 14. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for your words by which you teach us and grow us up in faith. Convict us by your Holy Spirit this morning and push us towards your loving arms where we may truly rest. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So our story this morning picks up in a fairly familiar place. The disciples have really have no idea what's going on. It's the day where they're supposed to eat this Passover meal. It's the, it's the first day of unleavened bread, the 15th day of the month of Nisan. But the disciples don't have a plan. Passover was the holiest Jewish festival of the year, and it told the story of the Israelite people's exodus from Egypt. It commemorated the way in which God delivered his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt through his servants Moses and Aaron. And specifically, the meal that they were supposed to celebrate involved eating unleavened bread and other ceremonial elements to remind the people of when the angel of death passed over their homes, basically saving their children, and when he killed the children of um, the Egyptians. It was the tenth plague and the final one that convinced Pharaoh that he should actually let the Israelites go. So the whole story is recorded in the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus. But this is the meal that they were supposed to celebrate today. So the disciples turn to Jesus, not knowing what they should do, and say, Jesus, where should we prepare the Passover meal for you? The story actually goes remarkably similar to when the triumphal entry happened. Mark actually uses 11 of the same words in a row. He sends two disciples ahead, they see someone, and then they have a little script that Jesus has given them. In this case, they say the teacher needs a place to prepare the Passover. And everything goes exactly according to plan. And so the first thing we want to notice as we look at this story is that Jesus is in control of everything. Nothing comes as a surprise to him. He has it all planned out to a T. Even to a man who would just be walking down the street who would happen to belong to a household where they would have a place to stay. And we don't actually know if this is Jesus using his divine foreknowledge to know what was going to happen, or if he had just planned this many, many weeks ago on a visit to Jerusalem. But what we do know is that Jesus is not caught by surprise. Nothing surprises Jesus, and it is all part of his good plan. And never is this more the case than at the start of the meal, when Jesus shockingly prophesies that one of the twelve, one of his closest disciples, is going to betray him. Nothing catches Jesus by surprise. And so as their meal begins in the upper room of this guest house, the twelve disciples were reclining with Jesus at table. This was a truly intimate experience. It's something that the chief priests and the scribes got upset with Jesus for doing with sinners, eating with someone. It was intimate and showed that you had fellowship with them. And so in typical fashion, like a good Jewish family, Jesus, as the head of the family, led the meal. He would have recited portions of scripture and they would have eaten the ceremonial elements and he would have interpreted what the Passover meant, telling the story of the people's deliverance. 
But in this instance, the author Mark doesn't talk extensively about the details. He doesn't talk about the lamb that they would have eaten or the other ceremonial elements. He doesn't talk about the scripture that Jesus read. Because Jesus totally derails the celebratory feast. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So what begins as this intimate family meal celebrating the greatest event in Jewish history becomes this murder mystery. And think for a second from the perspective of the disciples. We as the readers learned last week that Judas was going to betray Jesus. He sold him for a few pieces of silver. But the disciples have no idea who is going to betray Jesus. The disciples throughout the whole book of Mark have had such a problem figuring out who Jesus is. For the first eight chapters, they don't even know that he is God's son. And when Mark finally gets it in, I mean, when Peter finally gets it in Mark chapter 8 and says, you are the Christ, the son of God. When he finally gets it, Jesus then says, yes, and I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, 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 you're not. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And he says that because the people still don't understand that not only is he God's son, but he's also going to have to die. And now a whole new question is thrown into the wrench of the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. And that's that one of them is going to betray him. One of the twelve who spent three years with Jesus is going to betray him. It says that they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And Peter must have been especially nervous. He was the one who Jesus had rebuked and said, Get behind me, Satan. He was the one who rebuked Jesus for going to Jerusalem to die. But each disciple must have been so nervous. Who would betray their great teacher, their leader, their Messiah? The betrayal was coming from someone, Jesus tells us, who is intimately connected with him, who ate with him and dipped his bread into the dish with him. And while the disciples didn't know who that would be, we as the readers know. Jesus goes on to say, the Son of Man will go as it is written of him. And for the individual who betrays Jesus, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. A few things on this point. First, it seems likely that the twelve apostles knew that when Jesus says, the Son of Man will go as it is written of him, he was referring to himself going to die. It also seems clear that there's a tension between Judas's free choice to betray Jesus and God's knowledge of his sovereign plan. Jesus is not surprised and knows that Judas is going to betray him, and yet Judas freely chose, as we learned last week, to sell Jesus for a few silver coins. And this tension is one of the great mysteries in Scripture that we really can't unravel and we really can't totally understand. But we see that Judas decided to betray Jesus and that Jesus knew Judas would be the one to betray him. And with all this talk about betrayal, thankfully, it's not Jesus' final words at this meal. Mark goes on to say that Jesus says, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, this is my body. 
And if it starts to sound familiar that Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it, you're catching on. It's something that we say regularly when we take communion. But it's also something that occurs when Jesus feeds the 5,000. He takes bread, he blesses it, and he gives it. He breaks it and he gives it. And there's something more going on than Jesus simply praying before a meal when he breaks bread and blesses it. In Jewish tradition, by blessing the bread and giving it, Jesus was making the recipients of the meal blessing, blessings, uh, sorry, recipients of his blessing. And in the same way, when they drank that cup, they received his blessing. And so part of the question then is, what is the blessing that they are receiving when they take that bread and when they drink that cup? And that's part of the question we ask when we take communion. What is the blessing that we receive when we take that bread and when we drink that cup? But for Jesus on this night, he was radically reinterpreting what this Passover meal meant. Rather than celebrating the event that happened over a thousand years ago, their exodus from Egypt, rather than commemorating and celebrating that event, he was not, he was commemorating and celebrating the event that would have to happen tomorrow when he would die on the cross. Through his body being taken, blessed, broken, and given. Something far more profound than the disciples could have ever imagined was happening. Jesus continued saying, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so we've talked about this meal being a family meal, but also being a meal that reminded the people of their covenant. Like we had read for us this morning in Exodus 24, it tells us that Moses took blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. The Israelites were made God's people by the meal that they celebrated. They were cleansed by the blood of goats and bulls of the sins in their lives. And so blood in the Jewish culture took on a new meaning. It had the power to cleanse someone and cover up and make atonement for their sins. The Israelite people had a whole sacrificial system based on this. And so when Moses covered them with the blood of goats and bulls, they were cleansed in front of a holy God. And now we see that rather than being covered by this blood, they were imbibing it. They were drinking it. Jesus was reinterpreting the Passover meal, taking normal elements, bread and wine, and saying these mean so much more and they point to so much more and they will actually bless you. As Jesus reinterpreted these Passover elements, he was saying that the ultimate bondage and slavery that the Israelites were delivered from a thousand years ago was smaller than the bondage and slavery of sin that they needed to be delivered from now. As Jesus puts it elsewhere at the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So with all this heady talk about the Passover meal, how it's been reinterpreted 
how we take communion to commemorate the meal that Jesus took with his disciples. You might be sitting here wondering, what does this have to do with me and the new covenant that I'm in with Jesus? And here's what it means. Jesus has made a new family, a family that we're called to be part of. And in in this family, our our deepest and darkest sins are covered by his blood. In this family, God looks at the very ugliest parts of us, the parts of us that we think if anyone saw, they would never love us. God looks at the ugliest and most sinful and wicked and selfish parts of us, and he calls us beloved. God looks at us, and because Jesus' blood covers every sin we've ever committed, past, present, and future, he says to us what he said to Jesus, you are my child and with whom I am well pleased. And how can we know that God wants us to be a part of our family? We know it because Jesus, because of who Jesus invited to be a part of his family so many years ago. If you, you look at the text in your pew Bibles, you'll see that the section, the institution of the Lord's Supper, is bracketed by two other sections. The one is the prophecy of Judas's betrayal, and the next one is the prophecy of the disciples' abandonment. And Mark does this as an author to say that the middle portion, the Lord's Supper, interprets the other two portions, the prophecy of the betrayal and the prophecy of the abandonment. So what we see is that the Lord's Supper is meant to be for those who betray him and for those who abandon him. We are precisely meant to be a part of God's family and to take this family meal because we know and acknowledge that we are those who betray him and those who abandon him. The 12 disciples who were closest to Jesus, who he ate this meal with to commemorate what he was going to do on the cross, one of them betrayed him and the other 11 abandoned him. And so we find ourselves in this exact same position, unworthy to take this meal, just like these disciples, and yet that means that this meal is precisely for you. The unworthiness that you feel is precisely what makes you worthy to take this meal. Jesus says that he came to seek and to save the lost, to seek and save those who abandon him. And as Jesus puts it elsewhere, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Or maybe in this instance it would be better to say, I came not to call the hungry, the well-fed and satisfied, but the hungry. In some church cultures, they actually fast before taking communion. They don't eat breakfast before they take communion so that they can come to the table hungry, knowing how much they need. And so what we come to see is that the meal that Jesus offers, the meal that he offered his disciples, the same meal that will be offered this morning, is precisely ours because we are unworthy of it. The bread and wine are offered to those who betray him and those who abandon him. The only requirement being that we know we have abandoned him and that we need his grace. Jesus offered himself up in death, death on a cross. He had his body taken, blessed, broken, and given for us. 
we're able to come to the communion table today having confessed our sins and received assurance that despite our betrayal, despite our abandonment, we have a great high priest, Jesus, who offered himself as a sacrifice for us once and for all and who is now present with us in the Lord's Supper, bestowing the benefits of his death. So what are the benefits of his death? What are the blessings that we receive in this table and that we receive when we confess and hear that we are assured? We receive the blessing of the presence of his spirit, a deeper understanding of his grace, a real feeling of forgiveness, and a realization that we are God's beloved, that the ones who betray him and the ones who abandon him are the ones he called beloved. And we're called this morning to acknowledge that we betray him and we abandon him, but that precisely because of that, we are loved by him more than we could ever, ever imagine. And so we have this meal this morning to remind us of that fact. Let me pray for us. Father, be present with us now as we take and eat at your table, convince us of your love, convince us that we are beloved and that you have died for all of our sins. We love you and it's your name we pray. Amen.